as Christians, when we designate ourselves as various people in our various roles, when it comes to our allegiance to Jesus Christ, there are many terms that we get. Some are straight from the Scriptures. Some are related to the Scriptures. We know that the Apostle Paul tells us to be like good soldiers. And so oftentimes we are referred to as soldiers of Christ. We like to call ourselves soldiers of Christ. In fact, if you were to look at uh, the body of work in terms of hymns and praise songs, there are many entitled soldiers of Christ or have those words as their theme. But when you think about it, what comes to mind when you think of that term? If you are to call yourself a soldier of Christ. It is indeed a powerful term. It embodies much of what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ, but it can mean different things to different people, even different things within the same mind in different contexts. For some, it may bring up something very personal and internal, visions of battling their own sin. Others may relate to the Apostle Paul, who has been a good soldier of Christ, saying he has fought the good fight. And so what does it mean to you? Well, if you are from Duluth, Georgia, the term soldier of Christ may mean something very different this week. This would be because a South Korean woman in her 20s or 30s, they're not sure, was found last Tuesday in the trunk of a car, having been beaten and malnourished to death, weighing only 70 pounds when the police found her. The suspects were six individuals, ranging from the ages of 26 to the youngest, who is only 15. These are six people who are part of a religious group calling themselves soldiers of Christ. Not just heretical, but downright demonic. Yet using terms that we as Bible-believing Christians would find admirable, even inspiring. This is what false teachers do. They take the words of God and they twist them so that they are not the words of God, they are words of man. Concoctions that sound right, but are in reality, again, heretical and often demonic. It is this very twisting of the Scriptures that Paul is admonishing his true child in the faith, Timothy, to deal with in the Ephesian church where Timothy has been left as a pastor. And this morning, as we finish off our three-week study on the warning of false teachers, we pick up on a specific misuse of the Mosaic law, and we see Paul's clarification and giving us the correct understanding of that law, especially as it uh, revolves around or relates to the Christian, the New Testament believer. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Again, we have been looking at a warning about false teachers here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. We finish off this teaching in verses 8 through 11 this morning. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This morning I want to give you, very simply, three correct understandings of the law. Three correct understandings of the law because as believers we can often wonder when we're talking about the Old Testament law, what does it mean for us? What is the purpose? The first correct understanding of the law is the potential. The potential of the law which I find in verse 8, which I'll read for you again. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, Paul is clarifying what he just said about the misuse of the law by the false teachers, which we saw in verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read those for you. 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. We saw this two weeks ago. 
For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, although Paul is speaking of the teachers who misinterpret the law, one could easily jump to the conclusion that Paul is condemning the law in general as bad, which is not true. Just in case there are those who are slipping into that wrong conclusion, he moves on and he clarifies that not only is the law good, but when understood and used correctly, it is essential and it is profitable. Now, the law he is referring to and has been referring to throughout this study is the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And so the question again for the Christian is, how does the law apply today? How does the law apply to Christians who are in Christ, the fulfillment of the law, according to his own words in Matthew 5.17? How does it apply to me as a believer? Now, Paul begins answering these questions by assuring us that the law is indeed good. In other words, Christian, do not disregard the law. To put it in a practical way, don't disregard two-thirds of your Bible. Don't throw it out. Paul says it is good. Literally good, suitable, useful, even excellent. Now, Paul reiterates This truth in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, which says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we know that the law is good because it reflects the character of our God, and He is good. The law shows us what God created us to be in His original plan in the garden before the fall. The law shows us what God desires of us. And what's more, expects of us. But the law is not some sort of independent set of rules that are distinct from God himself. He did not arbitrarily decide to make these demands of us. The law is a reflection of the character that he embodies and thus a direct set of commands that will align the follower of God's life with God. As believers, we know that these commands, Old Testament and New Testament for that matter, are impossible for us to fulfill perfectly. When sin came into the world, we had no choice but to fall short because of our nature that was completely and totally contrasting to the nature of God. Sin on our part, holiness on His For us, the goodness of the law is found, and this may sound strange at first, the goodness of the law is found in that in the law, there is created a deep and wide chasm between man and God, and the law makes us aware of that. Now, why would that be a good thing? Because the break between God and man exists whether man knows about it or not. The break between God and man exists between God and every single individual, whether they recognize it, are aware of it, or accept it or not. And so it is in His grace, in His goodness and desire for us that He tells us about it. He tells us that there is a division between God and man, but you know the rest. He doesn't just tell us about it and leave us to our own resources to figure out what that means and how to fix it. He then provides a way to bridge that gap and bring us into reconciliation with Him. That is, of course, through Jesus Christ. Look, nobody likes the feeling of failure. But it is worth it if it is the means by which we reach out to the one who fixes that failure for us. Damage to the human body, for example, is accompanied by pain. We don't like pain. 
most of our lives, and for many of us, most of our budget is spent trying to deal with pain or prevent pain. But it is that pain that drives us to seek someone who can fix the problem. See, the pain, although for us seems like the problem, ultimately it isn't the problem. The source of the pain is the problem. Pain is just this wonderful God-given alarm system that something is wrong. And just like the feeling of guilt is not the problem, the source of the guilt is, the source being sin. And as uncomfortable as it is, physical pain helps us. Without it, we wouldn't know anything is wrong. We would bleed out and die. We would let the displaced bone continue on until we are fully handicapped. In the same way, without the law, we wouldn't know that anything is wrong. The law is our tutor. It is our guardian that led us, brought us, escorted us to Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.24. But here's the thing. We can often ignore pain. We can misinterpret the physical symptoms that our bodies are telling us to listen to. And what's more, we sometimes have people who tell us, ah, just ignore the pain, you're fine. They give us bad advice. These are the false teachers that Paul is telling Timothy to deal with in the Ephesian church. But more often than not, praise God, we have someone who will come along and tell us, you got to get that checked out. Don't ignore the pain. You need to see a doctor. In other words, they encourage us, spiritually speaking, to respond to the law in the right way way. Deal with it properly. And what Paul calls using it lawfully. Paul says that the law is good if we use it lawfully. We know that the law is in and of itself objectively good as opposed to bad or evil. But remember, the word good has the meanings of useful and suitable. So he is saying the law, though objectively good, can be useful if used lawfully or properly. In this context, Paul is saying that the law has great potential so long as you use it in the way it was intended to be used. That's what the word lawfully means in the Greek. To use the law according to its design. To apply the law to your life in accordance with its intent as defined by the writer of the law, God himself. And this is a practice which the false teachers are not engaging in, thus making it necessary for Paul to explain the proper use of the law. They have twisted it. They have used it unlawfully, if you will. So in other words, just because someone is mishandling the word of God does not mean that it is not useful in the hands of the right people. And we, Christians, are the right people. But we are still imperfect. We are still sinners. We need to be careful that we don't mask or misappropriate the intention and design of the law, thus removing its powerful potential. But then, of course, that begs the question, how do we meet the potential of the law? In other words, in Paul's words, how do we use it lawfully, properly? And that brings us to the very purpose of the law, which is our next point. Our second correct understanding of the law, having seen the potential of the law, is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. To put it simply, when used properly, the law proves itself to be not for good people, but for bad people. And this becomes clear because of how we've already defined it. It is to expose the sin, thus exposing the gap, the bridge, or not the bridge, the chasm between God and man. This is the point. 
It is what drives people to Christ because they now recognize their sins, sing this law, and subsequent need for a Savior. Then those who are now in Christ and living righteously, we no longer need the law. The tutor has already done its job. We have been driven to Christ. We are in Him. We have turned to Him as a Savior. This is the same analogy that you could use of any uh, law on the freeways, California state laws. Right? You don't slow down and drive the speed limit unless you know the speed limit. Some of you don't slow down anyways, but you get my point. <laughs> you are now aware of it and you say, oh, wow, I could get a ticket. The law is for you and it has driven you, no pun intended, to slow down and obey the law. It's the same idea with the Mosaic law. And so when Paul writes that the law is not made for a righteous person, he is referring to the person who is already conforming to the law. As, a, as believers, this is who we are. Still sinning, of course, but overall conforming to the standard set forth by God as represented in His law. Now, to be clear, we as Christians are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, but by the commands of Christ. But the point that Paul is making is in regard to the false teachers. Remember the context. And these people are putting excessive burdens of the law on those who are already righteous according to the law. This is the early church. They're still learning. They do not have the canon of the New Testament. It isn't written down. They can't just open it up. They can't just uh, pull it up on their phones and their pockets. They're still learning. This is new to them. This is new to the world. And so they appreciate and have accepted the gospel, and then these false teachers come in and they say, yeah, but the law says this and this, and they try to mix it with what Christ has said improperly and unbiblically, and you can see naturally that they're getting confused. We have a tendency to get less confused because the church is established. We come and there are people who say, no, 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 that's bad theology, that's false teaching because there are millions of us already there are books, there are podcasts, there are sermons, there are blogs. We get it to a greater degree. They were new. They were, the church was in its infancy. And so, of course, in order to make a law-abiding citizen feel as if they need to adhere to your interpretation of the law, you must reinterpret or misinterpret the law. The only way someone who knows the law and is living out the law as they should to make them think, oh, you're doing something wrong, is if you change the law. And that's what the false teachers are doing. This is what they were doing in the church at Ephesus. This is what false teachers do today. Now, going back to our illustration of physical pain, indicating that something is wrong and that you are in need of a doctor or some other specialist, could you imagine a doctor who reinterprets or misinterprets your physical state just so that you will continue to have to see him or her so that you will keep giving them money or your insurance company will? That's a quack doctor. That's a doctor who should not be practicing medicine. In other words, you are already fixed and healthy, but he finds some way to keep you coming to his office. Again, this is what and why false teachers do this. And as far as the right interpretation of the law is concerned, if it's not for the righteous, then whom is it for? The answer, generally speaking, is then for the unrighteous, of which Paul gives us several examples, and the point becomes very clear as we go through this list. Now, as we go through this list, you will see that some uh, mostly the later ones, correspond to specific commandments within the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, whereas others are forbidden in Scripture outside of the Ten. One thing they all do have in common, as you probably have already noticed, is that they are quite extreme. These are categories of sinners, unrighteous, that highlight all that is wicked in this world and thus in need of being shown their sin before their Maker, which will hopefully in turn point them to the Savior. 
which is, again, the purpose of the law. But why such an extreme list? For one, it clearly marks the division between the righteous and the unrighteous, of course, the righteous still being prone to sin. In other words, it clearly shows the righteous that the law is no longer for them because they do not fall into any of these categories. Sure, we may from time to time resemble some of these individuals, but unlike them, we do not embody these sins. They don't characterize us. We are the law-abiding righteous. Another result of this extreme list is that we are reminded of the grace of God. Revealing or defining sin is not the end goal of the law. The end goal of the law is to show the sinner that his ways are indeed sinful so that he will repent unto the one whose law he has broken. And finally, we must also take into account the actual context of these words, this list. If the false teachers are twisting the law to the degree that even Christians are made to feel as if it applies to them, the false teaching, their interpretation of the law, then we see how far the heretics are deviating from the truth through this list. Certainly what we are about to look at does not describe any true follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, if a believer in that church at that time is listening to the false teachers and saying, oh, I, that sounds right, I need to do what they're saying, here comes Paul on saying, are you a murderer? Are you a kidnapper? Are you a liar? To show them, look, this isn't for you. This is for those people. So, Let's look at the list. First, the law is for the lawless. These are lawbreakers. These are those who, generally speaking, are disobedient to the law. They live as if there is no law, whether they know about the law or not. They put themselves in a category in which the law does not apply to them. They think they're not subject to it. They flagrantly defy it. For these people, the law might as, well, might as well not exist. He goes on and says that the next type of person for whom the law exists is the rebellious or the disobedient in the ESV, very general. This word in the Greek is a compound word. It's made up of the word not and submissive. So it means not made subject or not subject to rule, not subject to the law. A good translation of this is the word insubordinate. It's the individual who refuses to follow the rules or subject himself to any sort of authority, whether it's in legal terms or their boss or whoever it may be. Just this past week, my wife was in line to check out at the store. When the couple checking out in the aisle right next to her, left with a cart full of stuff without paying. When the cashier called out, you need to pay for those, sir, the man just waved and just kept going. There was a line at that cash register. She apologized to those in line, said, I have to close. I need to go to the office and file an incident report. She came back a few moments later. By this time, my wife was up at her register, and so they were not being discreet about it. The one who was coming back from the incident report came up to my wife's checker and goes, $650 this time. My, my, my wife had a conversation with this lady. How often does this happen? She says, too often. We have to raise prices. It's just too much. And if you are surprised at all by the story I just told, I would imagine it's only because of the fact that my wife witnessed this. Because this kind of thing, people just taking stuff in stores and walking out, you know as well as I do, is in the news every single day, lawless and rebellious. They simply don't care. And by the way, no, my wife does not shop in San Francisco or Oakland. This was right here. 
lawless, and rebellious. Let's move on. The law, Paul says, is also for the ungodly and sinners. Ungodly is another compound word in the Greek made up of the words, and this is great. Next time you think of that word ungodly or see it, it's a compound word made up of two Greek words, not worship. It speaks of those who are irreverent, irreligious, and ungodly. These people have no reverence for God or anything related to God. They have no respect for anything sacred. These people run the gamut from denying His existence to recognizing His being but defying His authority. That's ungodly. This is closely related to the word sinners, which is next. The Greek word for sin, as many of you know, means to miss the mark. This is a derivative of that word. So it is the people who miss the mark, miss the target. The target or mark, of course, being the standard of God, His character, the law. Now this is not a description of all people in this context because we are all sinners. This is not what He's talking about here. As believers, we are sinners, but we adhere to the Word. We follow God. The context here tells us that Paul is referring to those who have no regard for God's law, God's will, God's desires, simply because they have no regard for God. Now, it is common these days to hear people say, maybe not right now, this day, but every four years around November, let's say, for people to say or to post on social media, he's not my president because they don't like who sits in the Oval Office. The sinner is a description of the one who says, he's not my God. Next, we have another general set of terms, unholy and then profane. Since God is holy, this unholy person is the opposite of God in that he lacks inner purity, inner morality. He has no desire to pursue that which is holy or that which is pleasing to God. When it comes to right or wrong, morally speaking, he's indifferent. He's indifferent to what is right, and he embraces what is wrong. He does not practice religion or moral conduct, but the practices of the world. Christians, on the other hand, are not only a people considered holy in standing in the eyes of God, but we also, because of God's empowerment and the Holy Spirit, have the ability to pursue practical holiness day after day in our lives. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, to show you the difference between the unholy and those who are holy because of what God has done. It's not on our own merit. 1 Peter 1, chapter 14 through 16, he classifies all Christians as obedient children. He's not saying those of you Christians who are obedient. This is just a term for all Christians. As or since you are obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a quote of God speaking. So you shall be holy, Christian, for God is holy. Then turn ahead to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, speaking of believers, the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a holy people. Those people described in the end of the passage we just read, prior to salvation, prior to joining this royal priesthood, the chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, outside of the mercy and grace of God, the unbeliever shackled to a sin, that's who Paul is talking about when he says 
the unholy. The next one, profane, back in 1 Timothy 1, has similar nuances and brings to mind the difference between that which is holy and that which is sacred. That which is, excuse me, that which is sacred and holy versus that which is ordinary and profane. We often don't think in these terms anymore. You could see how the Israelites did because there was literally certain ground that they could walk on that was considered sacred or holy. There were certain people that were designated sacred or holy. There were instruments in the temple that were sacred and holy. And so uh, we don't think that way a lot of times as Christians uh, because there are no holy things Right? It's not like uh, the Catholic Church, for example, or a, a lot of uh, other Christian cults where it's like, well, you can't walk in here because it's holy, holy ground, don't touch that, holy water, certain things that if a, a normal person, a non-priest or whatever touches it, they now have to burn it or re-sanctify it or whatever it is, right? dip it in holy water, whatever they do. Uh, we don't have that distinction, praise God, within the church where it's like there's certain, you know, when they break down this pulpit, it's got to be two guys that I've prayed over because this thing is holy. No, it's just beaten up wood, right? And so we don't have that. What we have now are the people of God. And as a side note, since I'm going down this rabbit trail anyways, there are also not things that are inherently evil, right? You can't accidentally touch a statue of Buddha and all of a sudden you need to go wash yourself or pray for forgiveness. It, it doesn't work like that. Okay? There, there's not, evil doesn't res, reside in physical objects and then if we touch them or eat at that restaurant or whatever, it now filters into our lives. Uh, that is the stuff of Stephen King, not Jesus Christ. Okay, but we think of that, okay? We're coming upon Halloween. Yes, there's a lot that represents that which is evil and demonic. Uh, but the kids, your kids' classmates are not just automatically evil because their parents took them to the spirit Halloween store and now they're, oh, that's not little Jimmy. He's possessed because, he, t- you know, I saw him at the elementary school, you know, costume parade. It it just doesn't work like that, okay? Let's go back to the text. I know you thought I'd never get back to this. We're talking about the profane, okay? And speaking about the physical objects, the, the word profane was used to describe the outer areas of the temple of God where all people, anyone, were allowed to enter and walk around. The common folk on the common grounds, So that which is profane, and this is very significant because it's not just for the extremely wicked. That which is profane is that which is accessible to everyone. It's just the stuff of the world. Whereas the sacred is accessible only to those who have been called to partake of it. The profane then are those who behave with arrogance and contempt toward the things that are associated with God. They trample on that which is sacred. At first glance, Paul's next category of those who kill their fathers or mothers seems oddly and uncomfortably specific. But it is an extreme form of breaking the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20.12. The next, murder in general, is a violation of the sixth commandment. You should not murder. These are self-explanatory. There's not much to say about these two, except for this, that despite what it may seem, actual murder, even, even murdering one's parents, is not a far jump from any of the other characterizations we have seen thus far. The nature of sin is enslaving, It is controlling, and when we start making distinctions between degrees of sin in the context of saint or sinner, then we've missed the whole point of the holiness and perfection of God. 
It is the laws of the land. It is the existence of jails and prisons and police and judges and the death penalty that keeps people from murdering more. It is not their morality. Moving on to verse 10. We have immoral men and homosexuals whom the law is for. These both violate the seventh commandment in Exodus 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The word immoral is a general term for all sexual immorality, immorality, sexual immorality of any kind, whereas the word homosexuals refers to the practitioner of a particular kind of immorality. Now, although in the Greek the word homosexual literally mean, means males in the marriage bed, we know that homosexuality, even for the unmarried or for women, is sin. Now here Paul is simply covering all the bases when it comes to sexual immorality. Perhaps it is helpful to note that although it seems to be more in your face these days with the LGBTQ movement, we are reminded here that there is indeed nothing new under the sun. Next, Paul says the law is for kidnappers or enslavers. This would be how we would imagine kidnappers, people who steal children, uh, but also those who are in the slave trade. Speaking of nothing new under the sun, stealing children was actually very common in New Testament times. And we, if we were to go to the Old Testament, we would see that kidnapping was a capital offense, as it should be today. Next, we have liars and perjurers. They are both cut from the same cloth and represent those who violate the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20, verse 16. As with the relationship between homosexuals and immoral men, a perjurer is a specific type of liar. Uh, You usually hear that in our our day and age, I think, within the context of of a lawsuit to perjure oneself. A perjurer is simply one who lies under oath or makes an oath and purposely breaks it. Paul then caps off his list with this catch-all phrase and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, the phrasing he uses helps bring to mind a couple of things. First, he is telling us that his list here, like most of his lists, of which there are many in his epistles, is not a complete list. It's not all-inclusive. The law is not just for those listed here. In other words, the law is not for those who are characterized by the sins listed here only, but also for many other sins, those sins being defined as anything that contradicts the proper understanding of the Scriptures. Here he calls the Scriptures and the teaching of it sound teaching, obviously using those words to uh, distinguish from the false teaching or the false teachers. Now the second thing that Paul's catch-all brings to mind is the theme of this whole section, which is, again, false teaching, or false teaching as opposed to sound teaching. I really like Paul's choice of words here as inspired by the Holy Spirit because the word sound here has the same meaning as we say today, he is of sound body and mind. It's the word healthy. Paul is calling true or right teaching healthy teaching. Not just good, not just biblical, not just good theology, healthy. It's healthy. I mean, think of that in the context of someone who's sick versus healthy. For those of you who went to the retreat, think of your first meal after you left Sacramento. Finally, you're eating something healthy. There's a refreshing feeling about that after a weekend or vacation of binging on tasty but bad-for-you food. That, that, that livelihood, that fresh feeling, sound doctrine is powerful. It is healthy. Biblical doctrine is healthy doctrine. It is not sick. It is not maimed. It is not diseased. It is not altered like false teaching. Sound teaching is not even neutral. It should do something for you. And the word refers to the wholesomeness or healthiness 
of biblical or true Christian teaching. This is great. The word sound, it's the Greek word from where we get the English word hygiene. Sound doctrine is spiritually health-giving. It is spiritually life-giving and life-sustaining, which is why this term sound teaching is used in the pastoral epistles to refer to the conventional, approved, apostolic doctrine. It's the good stuff. This is also why anyone personified by anything contrary to this doctrine is within the list of the ungodly sinners for whom the law exists. Sound, healthy, hygienic doctrine produces life, growth, health, and joy. False, sinful, diseased doctrine produces death, decay, spiritual sickness, and worldly pleasure. And yes, I am contrasting worldly pleasure, as good as it feels, as happy as it makes you feel, with true biblical joy. Now, if the law is for sinners, then where do we come in? You've already said that exposing sin is not the end goal. Paul has said that the law is not for the righteous. Well, that's where we look back at the law and look at who we are today, and that's where the gospel comes in. And it is with the gospel that Paul ends his warning about false teachers. We have seen two of our correct understandings of the law, the potential of the law and the purpose of the law. And now, as he closes with the gospel, the power of the law. The power of the law. The law is actually a necessary part of the gospel because when used properly, it shows people their sin. And the reason the law shows people their sin is because the character of God bleeds into the requirements of the law. The law then shows people how far their character is from God's character despite demanding that we emulate His character. That is a requirement of all men, believer or not. And look at these wonderful descriptors. He says the gospel is glorious. I think we'd all agree with that. This is because it is the good news, but not just any good news. It is good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel expresses the splendor and power of God. It is glorious. And this glory of God through the gospel is in turn manifested in those who believe. The gospel, Paul continues, is the gospel of the blessed God. Blessed means happiness, and this refers to the fact that God is both blessed in and of Himself, but is also the source of blessing for His children. And the visibility of this blessing is made all the more clear. Okay? The blessing you have in the gospel of who you are as a Christian because you have believed and entrusted your life to the blessed God in the glorious gospel, it is made all the more clear when you look at the backdrop of what we just read in verses 9 and 10. That's everyone else. The recipients, the objects of the glorious gospel from the blessed God is you. And the gospel, this gospel, Paul says, has been entrusted to him by God. This is his role, to be an apostle, to be an evangelist, to be a church planter. He has been entrusted with this glorious gospel by the blessed God specifically and individually called to be entrusted with the gospel, and so have you. Not an apostle, not hearing the voice of God, but as a believer, you do not just receive and partake of the beauties and wonders of the gospel. You have been entrusted with it to live it out 
and to proclaim it. And so we have three correct understandings of the law, the potential, the purpose, and the power. And now that we've unpacked what the law means, and especially looking at this backdrop of who the law is for, this list of sinners, so what? So what? What do we do? In its context, Paul is explaining to Timothy the importance of the law despite the false teachers abusing it for their own benefit and profit. So in that, simply on a theological level, we now have a theological understanding of the purpose of the law in the believer's life as well as the overall plan of God. This is important to know. It's important to understand. On a practical level, there is much that we can apply from this. Now, a lot of times, it's easy, and this is my assumption in how I preach and give you my outlines. We may go home and think of a certain sentence or a certain phrase. This is what I need to do with my life. Pray more. Read more Bible, right? We have these short, simple, but powerful phrases that help us to remember what we want to do in response to God's Word. And there are many of those, I believe, from what we have just seen. Some of you may see this list of sins, for instance, and take comfort in the fact that you are not alone when you look at the world and you are repulsed by the immorality all around you. Rather, there is in fact a biblical standard that classifies something as immoral despite what our culture may claim. And so maybe the phrase we take away as we think of this list is holy standard. Holy standard. Praise God for a holy standard. And as true and as important as that is, that should not be our primary application here. Another possibility is to respond with thankfulness. Despite the rise of false teaching, or the continuation, I should say, of false teaching in our world today, There is sound teaching that is objectively good and right, even when, if not especially when, the false teaching is concealed behind terms that sound attractive to the world, terms like charismatic, seeker-sensitive. Look, those of us in this room, we bristle at these terms because we know what they mean in the context of evangelicalism. But if you look at the dictionary definitions of those terms, they are inviting to those who do not know better. We want to hire people who are charismatic. We want to be sensitive to people who are searching. But we know that those are tricky terms for often what comes as a plate of false teaching. And so we appreciate the fact and we take comfort in the fact in that phrase sound teaching and perhaps the application you go away with that is related to that phrase sound doctrine or biblical doctrine and as true and as important as that is that also should not be our primary application here others of you may be so moved by the state of affairs described by the people on Paul's list and want to go out and preach the Word. You are reminded of the desperate spiritual situation that your friends and loved ones are in, and the phrase you think of is, make disciples from the Great Commission. Go out and preach, and we need to do that. And as true and as important as that is, that should not be our primary application here. So what should our primary application, our first thought, our driving impulse be when we read a list like this and hear about the glorious gospel of the blessed God? The phrase we should think of is a phrase that Paul ends a similar list of sins with, and the phrase is this. Such were some of you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Only when you understand the reality of who you are before God and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you can you truly move forward with the right heart of humility and gratitude. And then, and only then, Will you proceed properly and properly motivated to take comfort in a holy standard, to give thanks for sound doctrine and go forth and make disciples? But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, and such were some of you, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I and all of us have been entrusted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can even see that false teachers are indeed false because of the clarity of your word. Thank you that we see this because though we were once like them, we were once one of them, you have revealed to us the glory of yourself found in the gospel and we are now partakers of it. And from that we have been blessed beyond measure because you are the blessed God and do not selfishly hold that characterization to yourself or pour it out upon those who love you. Help us, Father, to be clear in how we are to take a stand against false teaching, how we are to preach the gospel, how we are to view our knowledge of the truth and theology that is with humility and appreciation because we recognize that it is only by your grace, not anything we did, that we are no longer in those categories. Help us to always reflect on that, especially in the difficult times, especially when we hear false teaching, we get frustrated with those who reject you or abuse or twist your scriptures. May we take a moment to pause and reflect on the goodness that we know by your grace the truth and respond in a gracious and loving but firm manner. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we close in song.